0: Caroline, tell us when this year's National Cannabis Festival is going to take place and what the attendees who attend can expect from this year's event.
1: This year's National Cannabis Festival takes place April 22nd to 24th in Washington, D.C. If you're interested in coming out for music, join us on April the 23rd at RFK Stadium, where you'll get to hear from Wiz Khalifa, Lettuce, Ghostface Killah, as well as spending the day among our education pavilions, Exhibitors and our giant food court. It's going to be a really, really great day in Washington, D.C., and I hope you can join us.
0: Hey guys, Montel here. Welcome to this edition of Let's Be Blunt with Montel. And I'm so excited about my guest that I have on today because, you know, what I talk about here quite often is the fact that this industry needs more education, more education to the consumer so the consumer can understand, you know, what, The whole world of cannabis is like so that they can and about so that they can go out and make good choices for their family as they try to navigate this daunting system in different states all over the country. My guest today is a founder of the High Street LLC, a public relations event production company with the mission of cultivating projects and ideas that leverage business and advocacy for the social good. In 2016, she launched the National Cannabis Festival in Washington, D.C., and in 2018, she expanded the program to include the National Cannabis Policy Summit and 420 Month. Going into her sixth year, the National Cannabis Festival is now the largest ticketed cannabis gathering on the East Coast, and the NCPS is the only nationally televised cannabis conference in the United States. She serves as on the Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Board for the U.S. Cannabis Council and also sits on the the board of the National Independent Venue Association. A native Washingtonian, she received her bachelor's degree from Wake Forest University, completed her postgraduate studies at Howard University, and received her degrees, her master's degree from Georgetown University. Caroline Phillips, welcome and thank you so much for being a part of Let's Be Blonde with Montel.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here.
0: Oh, I'm so excited to have you, and I, I really do admire what you're doing, and that is trying to get the information out to the public and to the masses about our industry. So let's back up for a second. How did you enter the cannabis industry and right out of grad school, or did you enter it right out of grad school, and um, or did you work for another industry before you started in cannabis?
1: You know, I spent my time right after grad school working in human rights. So I spent for a couple of years, um, I worked on international human rights issues, um, refugees, immigration, um, doing what I could with my skills to help on those issues. So really, for me, the transition into cannabis was natural, because I feel like what's happened in this country as far as criminal justice goes and the way that Black and brown people have been treated in drug policy, um, that's really a criminal justice issue. I mean, that's really a human rights issue.
0: Well, but but you know, back up for a second. I mean, we, we coming out of school, you worked on those issues Did I mean, what was your relationship with cannabis at that time?
1: At that time, I was someone who used cannabis at night and at home. It was something I did secretly with friends that I didn't see at work every day because I didn't want anybody at work to know what I was doing at night. I felt like it was something bad and like habit that I needed to get rid of.
0: And then what made you decide to come out of the shadows?
1: In 2014 in Washington, D.C., um, we voted to make cannabis, medical cannabis, legal in our city. And we also voted to make sure that adults in our city could possess up to two ounces of cannabis and could share cannabis with friends. Once I saw that happen, I joined a dispensary and I started to notice people from around my neighborhood. And I was like, oh, I didn't, I didn't know that man smoked cannabis. So I approached the owner of the dispensary and I said, you know, could we do some sort of gathering for the people who come here, I'd love to meet the community, and that's what really sparked the idea for me. Um, Creating a place where our community could gather that was accessible, affordable, and educational.
0: Explain explain Washington D.C.'s cannabis laws because I, I I've, I've been confused about this now. I guess in the it now did pass adult use, did it not? No, not yet. No, okay, but you you can't sell cannabis directly. You can sell paraphernalia and things like that and give the cannabis away for free? I I don't understand how this works.
1: So Washington, D.C. is under congressional budget control. That means everything that we want to do in our city, that our residents vote to make law, Congress reviews. So in 2014, when the residents of Washington, D.C. voted to legalize cannabis, um, we wanted to have A full adult use market in the city. We wanted to be able to have cannabis dispensaries that you could walk into to get your medicine. Um, A member of Congress named Andy Harris said, Absolutely not, not on my watch. If you all move forward with this, there are going to be repercussions. We're going to clamp down on your city council. We may even throw your mayor in jail. So they really threatened our city and they threatened the will of our voters. So right now in Washington, DC, we have medical cannabis dispensaries. As an adult, you're allowed to possess up to two ounces and you can share an ounce with friends. But if you don't have a medical cannabis card, which we both know there's a bar to entry to gaining a medical cannabis card. If you don't have that medical cannabis card, there's nowhere for you to go and actually purchase cannabis. There are no dispensaries that just serve adults over 21. You must hold that medical cannabis card.
0: So if you hold a medical cannabis card you can actually purchase cannabis
1: from one of only seven dispensaries. Correct.
0: Okay. But then everybody in the entire city gets to have up to two ounces of cannabis. Correct. But how did they get it?
1: I guess they think it's just falling from the sky because I'm still having trouble connecting a, A to B on this one. So yeah, Yeah. it's a little bit confusing.
0: I've I've been having trouble with this, especially, you know, I'm from Maryland originally and I have a lot of relatives and friends who live down in that area. And, you know, they were telling me that, you know, you can go in some place and purchase, you know, some lights and then they can give you cannabis as a gift. It's like, excuse me, explain this again.
1: So, I mean, that is one thing I will say, Washington DC and this area, we have a lot of very excited, very dedicated entrepreneurs who saw a loophole in this strange DC law that we have. And they said, well, I can gift cannabis to someone. And so long as I'm not selling the cannabis and the cannabis is free, then I can do that. So they started selling other items. Perhaps it's a t-shirt. Um, perhaps it's a mug. And with that, you would get a free gift of cannabis. So that's a market that's taken over in DC a little bit. Um, And we're really hoping in the next couple of months that we'll see legislation from city leaders, hopefully once Congress gets off our neck, but that we'll see legislation from city leaders that opens up a lot more licensing options. Because while these unregulated businesses are finding a way to work right now, the truth is that they provide livelihoods to hundreds of people in our city. They provided opportunities to people who for so long were treated like and felt like criminals. So the idea that we might recriminalize them would be heartbreaking. I'm really hoping that we can find some avenues for entry for everyone.
0: But the cannabis that they are giving away is not cannabis that's gone through any system. So therefore, there's no regulations on that cannabis, correct?
1: Correct. Right now, we don't even have um, licensed testing in Washington, D.C. We're hoping those licenses come soon, too.
0: And how about for the dispensaries? Are they required to test their cannabis in D.C.?
1: They are required to self-test, but we don't have any licensed third-party testing bodies in the city.
0: Well, So therefore you're really going off of, you know, faith and competence in those who are selling to be doing the right thing.
1: Yeah. And, you know, you have to believe the folks that have put so much time, energy, and expense into maintaining those licenses under such unfavorable conditions in our city. that so they're acting in really good faith. Um, one thing that makes me proud of Washington, D.C. and our medical cannabis program is the number of Black-owned cannabis businesses we have in this city. Uh, and I think that's something wonderful, and I know that those people got into it because they want to help the
0: community. No, no but, uh, again, I'm sorry if I'm, I'm I'm naive and I really don't understand this. So I don't have to have a license to give it away for free. Correct. So I can open up Montel's T-shirt shop. And you can come in and buy a T-shirt from me, and I can give you an ounce of cannabis along with it.
1: So technically, no. But Uh in reality, that is what's happening. It's something that city leaders, the D.C. Council recently held a hearing in September to talk about this issue. And it was really inspiring to see people from the licensed medical community and folks who've been operating in the unregulated space come together together. And talk about the issue, and talk about what could work for them. So you've yeah. nailed it on the head. You are talking about the crux of the exact issue that has been buzzing around the DC cannabis community for now seven years. But if well, you are
0: you know, I, 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 I was involved with the DC cannabis uh, community back in 2011 and 2012 yeah. when the, the medical cannabis was first passing. As a matter of fact, I received the first license for a grow. I walked away from the people that I was involved with because I didn't like the relationship and and didn't end up pursuing that. But I thought that was such a strange and, and some of the some of the requirements for the grow was so onerous that I just like that's got to stop. This is ridiculous. So I got out. But I've been really kind of fascinated by this whole weird, strange paradigm that's been going on. And, you know, it's almost like, I guess, those in Congress and the Senate down there that ratified the D.C. laws act as if this is not happening, right?
1: Well, that, you know, they act as if it's not happening. And then you get the narratives that, you know, the unregulated market is a danger to public health. This is a danger to public health. That's a danger to public health. Do you want to know what a danger to public health is? Congress restricting the will of D.C.'s voters so that we can actually have a fully regulated market. That's what's dangerous.
0: Right. Absolutely. the way
1: things are right now. It's, it's not good for anyone, and it's not necessarily the safest um, system for anyone.
0: Do you see this changing anytime soon in D.C.? I mean, you know, we've got, especially with the the divisiveness of a nation that right now is that any, anytime anybody says anything about D.C. statehood, oh, my God, I think it's going to be a revolution in America. You know, so anything that D.C. people want. And it's, it's such a weird Uh, it's one of those things I can't believe that America still allows to exist the way it does, because, you know, this is just about making sure that they can continue to enslave those black and brown people who sit around, live around those buildings that they're in. But do you see anything changing in DC in the next couple of years or what? Stay with us. We'll be right back.
1: the red life i know this is going to become your new favorite podcast and i'm going to show you how to grow a profitable online
0: company step by step every single week
1: so if you'd asked me seven years ago if we would still be living in this weird limbo as far as cannabis law is concerned in the city i would have naively said absolutely not like yeah what are you talking about they can't suppress our votes for that long that's ridiculous um but now i know a little better I do believe, though, that we have a real chance to see the Harris Rider lifted, and if that happens, um, then we'll be able to move forward and implement an adult use system in the city. And I think that what the past five years have afforded us is the opportunity to see regulated systems play out in places like Oakland, play out in states like Illinois, look and see what's happening and forming in New York and New Jersey, and start to think about what could really work for us. Because we're seeing the successes and the failures. And I really hope people are paying attention to making And you're working
0: right next door to Maryland and Delaware at PASS, right?
1: Yep. And, yeah, you know, Maryland has had their own set of troubles okay. as far as their social equity program. We're watching Virginia start to muddle through their own system right now. Whoever thought that would happen.
0: Right. Right. I know I'm, I'm a Marylander and I've been involved in, you know, multiple times with uh, helping to see if I can. Impact some of the legislature down there. I've been I've got a conference I think coming up uh, next week. Um, I've, I've been in the Maryland testifying, and um, it just seems so ridiculous some of the the roadblocks that have been put in in the way of people, especially people of color in the equity program. But just the way that they rolled out this entire program in that state. Delaware is, you know, doing a little bit of a better job, but I would think that with Washington D.C. kind of tucked in there. With them, you know, BC would figure out how do we stop revenue from going across the district's line, right. not the state line, right? Well,
1: we have the strange opportunity to really be able to do this well because we have so few licenses. And we have, you know, only a certain number of cultivators and a certain number of dispensary licenses and deliveries. So we have a chance to drill down in sort of a micro world, get this right and D.C. could be a blueprint for other cities, exponentially larger markets in other cities. But still, we have a chance to use a small sample to nail it and to use the information that we've learned from all of our neighboring states and across the country.
0: Well, is this what, what the uh, National Cannabis Festival was kind of born out of? And, and tell me a little bit about it. Tell me about its history. How did it get started? Uh, what was the first year?
1: So in 2015, I was still working in human rights, and I was contacted by a private company that said they were bringing a cannabis event to Washington, D.C., and could I help produce it? At the time, I agreed to do the job because I really didn't know much about the cannabis industry. You know, still something I was doing secretly at night. Um, So I agreed to take the job and help them with this event. On the day of the event, thousands of people showed up to this hotel. But something interesting happened. There is an area in the lobby where I saw all kinds of people from all over Washington, D.C., all walks of life, networking and talking. But Once you walked past the registration table, the room looked very different. I didn't see anybody from my community in that room. I did see a lot of older people. I saw a lot of men and I saw a lot of white people. And I thought that was a pretty strange thing for an event in Washington, D.C., I then realized it's because the organizers were charging $700 for the opportunity to network and learn. And that really rubbed me the wrong way because I knew that there were a lot of folks from nonprofit advocacy groups who had agreed to speak for free at this event and to share their knowledge with that room full of people. So after that event, I realized that I wanted to make an event that was accessible and approachable and affordable for my community. And I wanted it to reflect my community. And I think that you know, for better or for worse, the National Cannabis Festival does reflect both the opportunities and the challenges that remain with D.C. law. Um, have you been able to attend the event?
0: I have not yet, and uh, hopefully I will try to get down there this year. I mean, you know, last couple of years, I guess you must have postponed during the COVID ridiculousness, but uh, you're going to have another event this year, right?
1: One in April. We managed to have one in August. But, um, you know, we'd love to have you speak in one of our five education pavilions, Um, We have a giant exhibitor fair. We have a munchies zone that's bigger than any food truck festival, I think, in the United States. Um, There's a lot to do at the festival. There's a seniors lounge. There's a veterans lounge. And it's probably the most diverse gathering, both race and age-wise, of people that you'll ever see. And it's a really beautiful thing mid-afternoon to look across the lawn and see all of these people just sitting together. But yeah, this year we have Wiz Khalifa headlining, Lettuce, go mm-hmm. no
0: space killer. It's going to be a great show. And, and, and this is how the the event has evolved over the years, I'm assuming, because the first year that you ran it, you know, re, is your objective with the festival to educate, not just from a business standpoint, but how about a consumer standpoint? Because one of the things I talk about here quite a bit on Let's Be Vote with Montel is the fact that we, you know, we as an industry, I think, do a really serious disservice, um, Part of the disservice is the fact that we spend so much time talking B2B that we forget to talk B2C. And, you know, business to consumer, the B2C is the most important aspect of this because, you know, you take a look at at the, the pharmaceutical industry. I mean, why is it when you turn your television on every single day, all afternoon, it's take another pill, take another pill. Every commercial you see in every show is take another pill. Why? Because they advertise to the public so that the public can walk into the doctor's office and say, hey, I have this and I saw this. And the doctor has some of that sitting behind his best that he gives out. That's what starts, you know, the, 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 the rocket ascension of almost any drug in America. You know, we commercialize them. Now, we're not allowed to advertise that way when it comes to cannabis. However, we are allowed to educate. And unfortunately, a lot of this industry just said, eh, whatever, people will figure it out. I mean, no, they won't figure it out. You know, I mean, then the, the, most of the public doesn't even understand that we were all born with, as a mammal, born with something called the endocannabinoid system that we just started teaching to people. But we've known about this for now over 20 years. We're just now starting to tell people or to talk about in the industry, terpenes, flavonoids and the other components, parts of the plant that we've known about for 30 and 40 years that we're just now starting to talk about. And, you know, if we could demystify this, you would get, I believe, so much more support from the public Hamas, because they would recognize that this is like in Israel, it's considered a geriatric drug. I mean, you know, they they, they give it to Israeli uh, senior citizens, why? So they can cut back on the number of pharmaceuticals that they have to import all the time. It's a very simple (laughs) equation, you know, teach people more. People will go to the doctor and say, I want this and then more consumption. But we spend more time trying to figure out how to educate the guy down the street to open up his own shop to try to make money. And, you know, we got to get this flipping around. So does the festival feature a lot of education for the consumer?
1: Absolutely. Um, That's at its core. I don't know if you remember those MTV Rock the Vote concerts back in the day, Mm
0: -hmm. but I
1: like to say that we're the Rock the Vote event for the cannabis community. We have more than 30 drug policy groups that participate and exhibit on site. They also help produce most of our educational programming. So when you come to the festival, maybe you think you're coming to see Wiz Khalifa, but I dare you to try and leave without learning the names of groups like Drug Policy Alliance marijuana policy project, um, you know, minorities for medical marijuana, you will encounter those people, you will meet them. And I also dare you not to find your way into one of the education pavilions. Our education pavilions go all day. The content in them is both um, produced through our community outreach um, session selector contests. So community members submit their ideas, and also by our advocacy committee. So you'll learn about being your own advocate, You'll learn about best health practices. Um, You'll learn about the future of cannabis culture. Um, You'll learn about best grow practices. If you're interested in hearing from doctors, you can hear about that on site. There's a lot of education happening, and we really try to deliver it in a way that is digestible for people.
0: People come from all around the country?
1: Absolutely. People come from all around the country and they have such different experiences with cannabis. We have people who are daily consumers, and we have people who maybe consume once a year or just at the high school reunion. And then we have folks that are bringing a family member or a friend who really isn't a consumer, but they want to come to the yoga classes or they want to watch the wrestling match or see the concert. And I hope that by seeing the different ways that cannabis can interact with their life, that we're changing those people's opinions on cannabis a little bit too. And we're making it a bit more accessible to them.
0: It, uh, If I'm not mistaken, a lot of the DC universities, I think uh, George Washington University now has a class or uh, they're teaching something in the endocannabinoid system. Is it not true? And then it uh, was it American university that yep. D-
1: And I know that, um, I believe, up University of Maryland is developing a program. I know that Anne Arundel Community College even has a program. I think that UDC is starting to flesh out cannabis programs. It's exciting to see these discussions start to be part of higher education and to hear and see cannabis become an opportunity for people seeking serious careers.
0: Do you have any of those, like those universities, are they present giving presentations during your festival?
1: I know that hopefully we'll have some of the folks coming down from Anne Arundel Community College, but I hope that we'll see them all at our career fair. At the end of the day in our culture pavilion, we have a career fair where we invite companies on site and companies that um, aren't exhibiting at the festival, but participating in our education programming to set up tables to let people walk up to them and talk to them about what they're looking for in their next group of great employees.
0: Gotcha. Now, when is this year's event and who are the headliners?
1: This year's event takes place from April 22nd to 24th. We have our policy summit at the Ronald Reagan Building on the 22nd. The festival is on the 23rd at RFK Stadium, and the National Cannabis Championship is on the 24th at Echo Stage. Our headline. What is that?
0: What is that? What is that National Cannabis Championship?
1: That's a celebration of home cultivation. Um, so we're going to be celebrating home cultivators, but also making a call to legislators and surrounding states at home grow should be a right for everyone. Everybody should be able to grow their own medicine.
0: So the people compete on the medicine that they've grown? Is that yes. what they're doing? So yes. it's almost like a, a, a Best Bud kind of a contest or not? It
1: is, yeah. It started a couple of months ago. We've been taking entries and we'll be doing a big award show on the 24th that I hope that you'll come and attend and hang out at. It'll be a good time.
0: Well, tell us a little bit about your new culinary pavilion at this year's event.
1: So the Culinary Pavilion is our fifth pavilion this year. Um, You know, over the years, we've had some amazing one-off panels about, you know, infused beverages, infused foods, and they've always been so well attended. Well, last year, we actually threw in some cooking demos and eating contests, and we realized that we had the makings of a whole pavilion. So you'll see all of that in the Culinary Pavilion, panel discussions, cooking demos, eating contests, you name it.
0: Well, how is this, I mean, I'm sorry, I got to figure this out. How is this accepted by the local police? I mean, are you allowed to consume at an event like this?
1: So in Washington, D.C., you're allowed to consume in private. And at the National Cannabis Festival, we don't encourage people to consume in public.
0: Okay, so at the pavilion where they're doing infused products, or are they doing infused products or they are not doing infused products?
1: They'll be doing cooking demonstrations. Those won't necessarily (laughs) be served to the general public.
0: Gotcha. Okay. I see what you're saying. So you might, you might do a demonstration of how to infuse with cannabis, but nobody gets to Correct. buy it. Correct. Gotcha. Okay. So, um, and then how does the local, you know, municipality police department deal with this?
1: We have a wonderful relationship with local authorities. We've never had a single arrest or fight at the festival. Um, our attendees, I think, just feel very grateful that we've been given the opportunity to gather together and we work very hard to be respectful of
0: local laws. And well, tell me a little bit about the National Cannabis Policy Summit.
1: Absolutely. So in 2018, we started to realize that we were having great success attracting more liberal lawmakers to come and speak on stage at the festival. But we weren't getting that many acceptances from who might be more conservative-leaning. So we thought to ourselves, well, you know, what's the problem here? And it occurred to me that perhaps the folks on the right might be a little bit hesitant to speak at a festival, and maybe a conference would be more comfortable for them. Ultimately, our goal was to convene unlikely allies on stage at the festival or on stage at a conference where they may agree on very few other issues, but they do agree on one thing, and that's that we have to stop putting people in jail for weed. So we decided...
0: (laughs) You can take a look at the right and the left seem to agree. That's one thing that the right and left seem to agree on right. is cannabis consumption. You can take a look at what happened on January 6th. Yep. You know, a lot of the people who invaded the, the Capitol invaded it with cannabis in their hands. Yes. <laughs> I mean, I'm, sorry, I'm not, I'm not sure <laughs> they did.
1: No, unfortunately. Yes, true. Um, but, you know, we wanted to honor the fact that we had this opportunity to show off the bipartisan support for cannabis. And so we created the National Cannabis Policy Summit. Um, You'll see members of Congress, uh, folks from lobbying groups, folks from think tanks getting on stage, and maybe they're people you wouldn't ordinarily would think would share a stage together or even be in the same room, but all coming together to agree on that one basic tenet that it's time to have better cannabis laws in this country. Uh, The Policy Summit's free to attend. So if anyone's in town, you can walk into it just like you would a museum or any other free venue in D.C. And we'll also hopefully be streaming it live. So if you're not in the D.C. area, you'll be able to get that information um, on your computer.
0: Does that take place <laughs> the <same> time? It <laughs> is the it at the same time as the festival?
1: The day before. So we do Friday at the Policy Summit, Saturday at the Festival and Sunday at the National Cannabis Championship.
0: Gotcha. Okay. And what are some of the main concerns that you're going to be addressing this year at the at the Cannabis Policy Summit?
1: This year we'll be taking a look at um, interstate trade. So we'll be looking at how that might move forward um, under federal legalization and what the opportunities will be there for interstate commerce. We're going to be taking a look at the States Act and talking about if that's something good or if we need to hold back so we'll have some activists and folks from government talking about the states act we will also be taking a look at social equity and really digging in to talk about whether we are potentially holding back progress by waiting for the perfect social equity laws or if it's important for advocates to stand up and say no more until we get this right so we'll be covering a lot of different topics at the policy summit this year um, it runs from about 9 a.m. until 5 p.m. We'll be releasing the full agenda in February and also the speaker list at that point. So we look forward to sharing that with the public.
0: Got gotcha. you. Any plans for for expanding this festival or events to other states or even internationally? I've spoken a lot of I've spoken at a lot of international events on cannabis, and it seems like this kind of a format now that's been proven over six years would be something that could could do well. In many countries, from Germany to Israel, to uh, Spain to Colombia to uh, Mexico,
1: I would absolutely love that. Um you know it would be really beautiful to see folks being able to gather in other countries to talk about these issues and to celebrate. I think the most important thing for us when we think of moving the festival to other countries or even other states is that we have the support of the grassroots community and the advocates that have been doing the work in that community for so long. If they don't want us there, then you know, we won't try and set up shop there. But if we have their support and they're willing to work with us and help us create the great education programs that's tailored for the needs of their people and their communities, we would love to see the National Cannabis Festival expand.
0: Well, you know, I mean, as you're, you're on, the, on the the ground floor of this, I mean, you're you're right here where the rubber meets the road. And I'm sure that you get an opportunity to talk to politicians. What's that general sense that you get out of this? I mean, because I can say I'm one of those who's, who's a little uh, uh, jaded right now. You know, we have a president of the United States who is a clown who still thinks that cannabis is a gateway drug. And we have a vice president who probably arrested more people when she was a, you know, attorney general in California than any of the previous ones that had and lied to people talking about, you know, the, their, their own individual experience with cannabis when, you know, and, and even lied to the, I think to the, to the masses when they said, we're going to take care of this in the first hundred days of our, Uh, uh, administration and yet they haven't done a daggone thing. So, I mean, when you talk to politicians, you're there at the, you know, the heart of America in DC, what's your general sense of what's going on? Is this something that people don't care about because we're so divided on so many other things?
1: You know, I think that in before times prior to COVID, we definitely had the momentum and I think that there was great hope and optimism that we would see a federal cannabis legalization bill. Um, it's been really incredible to see progress and to see you know, the progress that we saw with the Moore Act and see to see the progress that we're seeing with the States Act um, in the House. And you know, I really hope that we can see things moving forward in the Senate. At the same time, though, I want to make sure that we have Really matured our own ideas about what legal cannabis should look like before we jump into something that we can't turn back. you know it's it's really easy to build on ideas. it's harder to pull them back in once they're out there. It would be heartbreaking given the history of the war on drugs in this country and given the work of black and brown activists to push forward for more sensible laws to not see serious criminal justice reform measures and serious social equity measures included in any federal legalization bill, but not just measures, ones that are really impactful and actually mean something.
0: that, That scares me quite a bit in the sense that because there are so many of these extremely conservative politicians out there that are hiding behind reform because that takes away one of their enslavement tools. I mean, let's be honest. I mean, you know, the only reason why cannabis is where it is is because I believe it was a re-enslavement tool. It was an obvious way to enslave black and brown people and put them in jail and fill up jails and commercial, you know, jails. So, you know, for our politicians, you know, to take that off the plate, that's almost a smack in the face of Donald Trump. You know, I mean, you need to have something that, that uh, you can keep, a thumb on the top of black and brown people. With, um, I, I, I'm I'm wondering if you think that, you know, I'm looking at the pushback that came in several states. Then they were where legislators are trying to reverse the will of the people all over America when it comes to cannabis. And I agree with you. It would be just ridiculous to attempt to reverse. The attitudes, uh, you know, 70%, 71% of people in the country right now today believe that cannabis should be made legal. Over 85% of them believe it should be legal for medicinal purposes. Um, Research that's coming out right now and research that's been coming out in the last year alone, cannabis is one of the most researched drugs on the planet. You know, there was over 3,500 different peer-reviewed published documents in the last year. That's more than has been published on aspirin since its inception. Yet, we still have politicians who have the nerve to say, well, if they did a little bit more research, if I understood the science, stop the stupid. The research is out there. We don't need any more research. What we need now is laws that keep up with the research. But we live in a nation that doesn't believe in research. We live in a nation that claims it doesn't believe in science if the science doesn't agree with them. You know what I mean? So. Where, where do you stand? I mean, what do you think? Uh, the, give me a little bit of the pulse or the heartbeat of, of what's going on with these politicians that you hear.
1: I, you know, my more pessimistic mind worries that the delay on federal legalization has to do with protecting opportunities for a few and building a system that only enriches a few certain people and creates, you know, a monopoly around a medicine for a few certain people. Right. Um, I worry about that. And I think that is an argument that has also been weaponized against people who are advocating for better social equity measures and who are putting their foot down and saying we can't move forward until this is fixed. I understand that we're probably not going to see a federal bill with the ideal social equity program included. I understand we're also probably not going to see a federal bill that has no social equity measures included because of how loud activists have been. So I think that we all just need to go into this understanding that we all need to hope for the best bill possible, and then we all need to be ready to hit the ground and keep up on the work. This isn't going to end with a sudden light switch. Everything's federally legalized. Everything feels fair and right. That's just going to be the beginning of the dig and the fight and the work to protect the rights of the little guy. So that's just going to be the start. I think All that right. what we're trying I mean, to do is get the best bill to start with.
0: Yeah, I, mean, I agree with you. I think the, the, if any federal movement is, is made, it's just going to reinforce the state lines. I mean, you know, because then you have states worried about this next door state taking away their business. And so we'll go through 10 years of, you know, yeah, it's federally legal, but you can't have federal interstate commerce. So uh, I think it's just a, a, there could be a little bit of a nightmare there. Um, what's next, though, for what your plans are? you got this year's festival, but I know you're thinking beyond this year's festival. What are you thinking?
1: I'd love to see the National Cannabis Festival become a full week-long program with events happening all over the D.C., Maryland, and Virginia area, almost like a South by Southwest for cannabis, where we talk about policy and business and activism and art and music. Um, So that's my vision for the National Cannabis Festival going forward. I would also love to start talking to activists in other cities and other countries to see if they would like to see a program like this where they are. Um, Apart from that, I'm working really hard with Supernova Women, which is a nonprofit I'm the deputy director of, And uh, we just released our first social equity economic impact report yesterday. So we're starting to get word out about that. And I'm really hoping to take some of the lessons learned on that work, bring them to D.C. So hopefully we can get some better laws here. And, you know, maybe one day when you come down here for National Cannabis Festival, you'll be visiting one of dozens of dispensaries, licenses of all kinds owned by all kinds of people.
0: There you go. Well, all right. Well, I tell you, wish you luck with the National Cannabis Festival. I hope it, it goes really well this year. Hopefully, I'll be able to travel uh, to get down to see you and get up to see it because I'm living in Florida. And I would love to be a part. And, um, you know, we wish you luck. I can't say thank you enough to Caroline Phillips for being a part of Let's Be Blunt with Montella Day. Anytime between now and then that you want to come back on to pump the, you know, to get the word out, to make sure people know what's about to happen, we'd love to have you back. Okay?
1: Thank you so much. It was so great being here today.
0: Absolutely. Well, you have a great day. You to stay safe uh, and um, make sure you tune into the next edition of Let's Be Blunt with Montel. Thanks for joining me on Let's Be Blunt with Montel. Please make sure you're subscribed and hit the bell to be notified when new episodes post each week. We'd love to hear your feedback, also. So please send us your comments. <laughs>